Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with all of you today. And I'm honored to be chairing this wonderful, um, wonderful panel. And I'm not only your chair, I'm going to provide you with my own personal comments and questions. So it's a double honor. Uh, yes. So first of all, I'd like to briefly introduce our speakers. And then I'll give all of them 15 minutes for their presentation. So our first speaker is Sophie Berge, uh, who is a PhD student at the University of Basel, Switzerland. Her PhD project is on the topic of smells and graphic memoirs. Sophie has a BA and an MA in gender studies and German literature. And uh, from 2015-2016, she co-led a research project about academic ex excellence at the University of Basel. In this project, she did interviews with university members asking what effect the imperative of academic excellence has on their working conditions and the life in the academia. Uh, she has taught many courses, for example, on gender studies, and apart from her work at the university, which makes her even more interesting, Sophie is also guiding city tours that focus on women's and gender history in Boston. So Sophie is our first speaker. Our second, second speaker today is M.K. Serwick, who is a nurse, a cartoonist, and educator who uses comics to reflect on the complexities of illnesses and caregiving. She is the creator of Taking Turns Stories from HIV AIDS Care Unit 371 and a co-author of Graphic Medicine Manifesto. She also co-manages graphicmedicine.org. Her next book will be the edited on anthology, menopause, and comic treatment. <laughs> already sounds <laughs> So our third speaker is Dominique uh, Rissard, who teaches, who is a historian, but also teaches gender studies at the University of Basel, so the same university, Switzerland, and directs the Swiss Center for Social Research. She is uh, presently finishing a book-length project on Pink, which is very exciting, um, which weaves a history of gender, sexuality, and whiteness through and around color. She has published a lot of different articles, uh, she has taught many different courses, and, um, and we are all looking forward to reading her book on pink. And as you will see today during her presentation, she has already started working on a different color. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and our fourth speaker, our final speaker, is um, MJ Mays, who is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. She's a historian of modern Europe um, with a with interest in comparative and world history. Her work explores the social and cultural history of the family, gender and generational relations, class dynamics, and personal narratives. She has, she has uh, published many books, and she's currently working on a new one, possibly titled Making History While Young and Female Girls in Europe's Age of 
revolution. So I decided to just shorten a bit your uh, bios for the sake of giving you more time for your presentations. So Sophie, you're first. Thank you. So I'd like to welcome you about my presentation about Lila Quintero Weaver's graphic memoir, Darkroom, a memoir in black and white. Here you can see the cover of this comic. Uh, graphic memoirs have caught my interest because they do something with space. Which memories can take up space in our society? Who can speak about history and whose story is heard? I want to start my presentation by thinking about the space graphic memoirs create. The comic scholar Hilary Shute writes, comic Comics life narrative establishes what I think of as an expanded idiom of witness, a practice of testifying that sets verbal language with and against visual languages in order to embody individual and collective experience, to put contingent selves and histories into form. Graphic memoirs, following Schutz's argument, are able to establish a new practice, a new way of doing, they are witnessing history. They can be used to testify against social injustice. Their combination of text and image shows embodied selves as part of a larger society, as part of a collective experience. In my paper, I want to talk about the space Darkroom is creating for the memoirs of a Latina writer who has witnessed racism and sexism against herself and also against other people of color. A strong feeling of solidarity is omnipresent in the comic's depiction of black citizens' struggles for their rights. Darkroom is addressing the question of how to document trauma and how to witness history from an intersectional perspective. I'm interested in how Weaver uses the comic medium's combination of text and image to bear witness to individual and collective experiences of trauma. First, I will give you a brief summary of the book and show examples of the comic's narration of racism and sexism. Drawing upon Anne Svektovich's notion of documenting trauma, I will analyze Weaver's use of photography and film in her art. Finally, I will show how Weaver creates a space of her own with her graphic memoir, emphasizing the need to look at the embodied experiences of the past. Darkroom consists of 10 chapters, which are framed by a prologue and an epilogue. The story starts when the girl Lila is five years old and moves from Argentina to Marion, Alabama with her family. The book ends with, a, with Lila as a grown-up, traveling back to Argentina for the first time after her emigration. Darkroom can be described as a coming-of-age story, but it is also more than that, as Janish Breckenridge and Madeleine Peterson state in their article about the comic. The young adult graphic memoir merges divergent, if not competing, narratives. An immigrant's tale, a coming-of-age story, a chronicle of the civil rights era, and a portrait of a maturing artist. So on the one hand, Darkroom shows Lila's migration and how she and her family are affected by discriminating norms of gender and race in the US. On the other hand, the comic also depicts political events of the civil rights movement that happened during the 60s and 70s. Lila's father witnesses some of these events as an amateur filmmaker and photographer. First, I'd like to focus on the personal experiences that are depicted in the comic. After moving to Marion, the protagonist Lila is trying to blend in, as she calls it. 
She describes the strict racial divides in Alabama society, as we can see in this panel. Looking at the style of the, of the comic, Jorge Santos notes how Weaver often depicts white racist people drawn with these simple and cartoon-like lines that we can see here. And this is to highlight their two-dimensional thinking. So yeah, here we can see the white people that ask, what are you or where are you from? And they don't understand her identity. The narrator states that no one knew what Lila's ethnicity was. And white people are drawn with these lines that show that mainstream opinion. However, Weaver also draws herself with these simple lines when she reflects on her own bias. She was, as we can see in this panel, she was idealizing herself as a fighter for racial equality as a teenager and is here kind of reflecting upon that, how she was kind of seeing herself as a Joan of Arc fighting. So in my opinion, this image shows the self-reflection Weaver encompasses in her comic, acknowledging her own prejudice and also her own privilege. An example of the embodied dimension of racism and sexism can be seen in the comic's negotiation of the white ideal of beauty. This represented in American women's magazines where neither Latinas nor black women are visible. This struggle with white hegemonic femininity is analyzed more than once in the book. For example, Leela's sister Lizzie was ashamed of her lips that don't conform to white ideals of beauty, as we can see in this panel, so she's kind of tucking her lips back when her father is taking a picture of her. Lizzie also tries to change the shape of her nose, as we can see on this page, by pressing it against the window of the car. So even though the depiction of these two incidents is rendered in a funny and comic way, they nonetheless show the embodied dimension of racism and sexism in US society where young Latina girls do not feel comfortable in their body. This intersectional perspective on norms of gender and race is also thematized in regard to the black community. The comic shows the inequality of white men being able to openly objectify black women, as we can see here in these panels. Black men, on the other hand, are worried about even just looking at a white woman, as we can see here. The comic gives many accounts of the oppression of black people in everyday life. More and more, the young protagonist Leela begins to see racism very clearly. She also witnesses the changes in society due to desegregation that starts after the successful protests. Black kids start to join her school and Leela has her first black teacher, for example. These everyday experiences are framed by public events of the civil rights movement. By including the documentation of these public events in her memoir, Weaver emphasizes how childhoods are always embedded in historical context and saturated with political tensions, events, and identities of that time. In 1965, there were marches from black protesters around the courthouse in Marion, where Lila lives. They protested for their rights to be registered to vote. At the center of the comic stands the dark night of violence against these protesters, which culminates in the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson by a white policeman. The pages that depict this violence have a black background, as we can see here. 
then this background both refers to the moral darkness of these events as well as to the impossibility of their documentation. The power had been cut, so it was impossible for witnesses like Lila's father, who was present at this event, to take pictures or film. Weaver uses juxtapositions like black and white as a narrative strategy to convey clear messages in her comic. The comic focuses on the bright, resistant community of black citizens that protest against the discriminatory practices of society. It also shows the dark side of white conservative society that is full of violence, as we can see here. This event was supposed to remain in the dark and remain undocumented. Photographic equipment of journalists was vandalized by the white mob, as the narrator points out. With her comic book, Weaver is now shedding light on these traumatic events. I think the multimediality of the comic is important for depicting these traumatic events and also the more ordinary forms of racism and sexism I have mentioned before. In her book, An Archive of Feelings, Anne Svetkovich reflects on the ordinariness of trauma that is not always public. Everyday forms of racism, many of which are institutional or casual and just don't always appear visible, except to those who are attuned to them, are among the effects of longer histories of racial trauma. This insight has been a crucial resource for me in tracking the diffuse effects of sexual trauma and the connection be between catastrophic events and very ordinary ones. As Svetkovic points out, trauma puts pressure on traditional forms of representation so that new forms emerge to document these violent encounters. In Svetkovic's work on Alison Bechtel's fun home, she notes, the act of drawing itself thus becomes an act of witness, while also giving rise to a collection of emotionally charged documents and objects. The photographs and film scenes that Weaver uses in her comic are such objects full of emotional value that she uses to document personal as well as collective experiences. The pictures Lila's father took are a political act of resistance, and so is her reproduction of these pictures in her comic. A memoir in black and white not only refer refers to race, but also to black and white photographic archive, the black and white photographic archive this comic relies on, as Jorge Santos points out in his article. The prologue of this comic is called Home Movies. We can see it here. Um, on home movie nights, Lila's father shows his film recordings to Lila and her sisters and, and her brother. For example, a scene where protesters marched around the courthouse in Marion. Lila's favorite part, as she describes here, of the movie night is at the end when her father rewinds the film and they see it all in reverse. <laughs> Comics is a medium where time is depicted as space. The comic book gives the readers the freedom to look at the pictures as long as they want and in the order they want, other than in film, which is kind of referred to here, I think. At one point in the comic, the traumatic structures of oppression combined with teenage angst make Lila wish that she could just disappear, as we can see here. The process of female socialization and racial inequality makes it hard for Lila to find a space where she can be herself. We can see Lila's finger who is erasing her drawn self, taking her off the page. 
The father figure is Lila's eye in the public documenting historic events, which in a way reinforces the gendered division of public and private. However, it is her mother who teaches Lila how to draw and to paint. While school is sometimes difficult for her because of racist discriminations, at home, Lila feels free to express herself as an artist, as we can see here. So in her memoir, Weaver combines her father's um, and her mother's artistic heritage of photography and film and painting, showing the personal is political. In combining these two art forms, she creates her own hybrid space for her memoirs that are embedded in historical events. To conclude, um, Virginia Woolf in her essay, A Room of One's Own, writes, intellectual freedom depends on material things. A room of one's own is vital to have intellectual freedom, to create your own perspective. Think about the lack of women writers in her time, Virginia Woolf urges women to write about whatever topic seems relevant to them. She, there, she writes, um, therefore, I would ask you to write all kinds of books, hesitating at no subject, however trivial or however vast. By hook or by crook, I hope that you will possess yourselves of money enough to travel and to idle, to contemplate the future or the past of the world to dream over books and loiter at street corners and let the line of thought dip deep into the stream. I see the form of graphic memoirs as a room, a space for female artists to express their thoughts on ordinary events as well as lost subjects. At the end of the comic, we can see Lila again painting in her mother's picture. So it's the same picture again that we saw before at the end of the book. Above it, we see this unhappy looking Lila that um, did not feel joy in studying art at university. However, this graphic memoir is the completion of her art degree that she did later. So through her graphic memoir, she has created a space to make herself appear again. To summarize, I, ar I argue that Weber uses the multimediality of the comic and its characteristic to depict time as space to interweave her personal narrative with broader historical contexts, showing traumatic structures of sexism and racism. Like the rewinding of the film in the prologue of the book, this comic looks back. The possibility the comic book gives its readers to look at the pictures in any order they choose shows us the contingency of history that is always a matter of perspective, is always in the making. Through solidarity with the protesters of the civil rights movement, Weaver puts her childhood in a socio-historical context that gives us a broader picture of traumas caused by racist and sexist structures. The protagonist recognizes her own need to look at society's various forms of oppressions. The comic invites the readers to do the same, creating a space to look back and to rewind. Why can't I just disappear? Lila asks when she has no space to be herself. Weaver's book shows whose experiences shouldn't disappear from history and helps us to reflect upon the embodied experiences of the past that shape our present. Um, so uh, I'm here to talk about the cartoonist perspective on <laughs> trying to do history and represent self in history. Um, uh, so um, it's not moving. <laughs> 
Do that. Yeah. All right. So I can use that now? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great, great, great. Thank you. Um, so as Mateus mentioned, I'm a nurse and a cartoonist and an educator who uses comics to help contemplate the complexities of illness and caregiving. Um, and I could unpack that if you care later, <laughs> uh, but for now we'll just go with that. Um, so my, my clinical nursing experience was in HIV AIDS and hospice care. Um, and some colleagues and I got together and did this book called The Graphic Medicine Manifesto, and it's a book that uh, kind of puts a stake in the ground as why comics should be taken seriously in the discourse of health, illness, caregiving, and disability. And then uh, parallel to that, I was also working in my own graphic memoir um, called Taking Turns, Stories from HIV AIDS Care Unit 371. Um, so my teaching, I teach at Northwestern, um, the Art Institute, University of Chicago, just basically doing this comics and medicine thing. Um, but I'm here to talk about this book and the process of making it and thinking about childhood and how that helped. Um, so a little backstory on the book. Um, so Unit 371 of Illinois Masonic Medical Center, which is not very far from here in Chicago, um, had this Unit 371, which was one of the country's um, for earliest dedicated AIDS care unit, which means that it was a specialized service and an inpatient unit with its own staff, its own volunteers, dedicated to the care of people with HIV and AIDS. And the unit was known for providing patient care that was cutting edge and highly respected, yet also occasionally unconventional. And what that image there was uh, at one time was going to be the cover of the book, but it was the elevator doors opening and these sort of Broadway show posters as being kind of the first thing outside the, outside the door. Um, and, um, and this image is some logbooks, which are basically probably the most concrete historical document of people moving through the place. Um, and they are lost to history, unfortunately, as far as anyone knows right now. So um, though nationally known and thousands of people came through this unit, Unit 371, and the great majority of our patients died, I discovered that no formal record of this place existed, no public history. Um, in contrast, um, the uh, AIDS care unit at San Francisco General Hospital, uh, 585B, actually has an archive in the entire, um, in the uh, uh, California um, library system. So I decided that as part of my, I always knew that I was going to make comics about this place because that's what I started doing, um, but I realized that uh, I needed a lot more supporting documents. So I actually conducted an oral history as my master's thesis. Um, uh, the presenter notes don't seem to be working, but so bear with me. I'm not just, I mean, I wrote this. I've got to know what it's going to say, right? At some point. Um, so uh, so the, the oral history had 25 narrators from diverse perspectives on the unit. I wanted like staff and, and volunteers and kind of as many perspectives as I could get. Um, it was conducted between 2008 and 2012. I used a life review format for the interviews, so where are you from, how did you get to this place, tell me about this place, and then uh, the bulk of the interview was that, and then um, how do you think about that time looking back now. So the unit was open from 85 to 2000, in case I didn't say that. And so I'm starting there in 2008, which is pretty soon after, relatively, um, that it closed all the way up to 2012, so there's a little more perspective there. Um, and then I transcribed all the interviews, and the narrators approved their transcripts, and they were able to redact anything that um, they, uh, the reason I, it was really important to use uh, 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 I think if I put on here, that I used consent forms. It was really important because most of these people I had worked with and I knew and I wanted to create a little bit of a distance and formalize that interview. So this was my thesis, um, which was text only. 
And then, as I mentioned, uh, and I don't expect you to read these, but these are just three examples of early comics. I, I was not the kid who could draw. I was not someone who drew as an adult. Um, but I started making comics while I was working as a nurse as a way to survive that difficult time and to, to be able to still connect to my patients, yet process those traumatic experiences. And this is actually an incredibly efficient medium for doing that, a little bit of image, text, and sequential fashion. That's comics, right? So I knew that I was going to be making comics about this place. Um, so I combined kind of the, the, the kind of the, the visual sensibility that people had shared with me about the place, my memories of the place. Um, I also had a lot of academic influences in this project. I was doing a master's in medical humanities and bioethics, so I very much was bringing in the influences and also from the arts as well as as academics. Um, and then I wanted to represent. I wanted to represent the 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 science of the disease, right? So I wanted that to be a piece of this. And I wanted to represent the impact on the body. Um, and a lot of this is formed by thinking through disability uh, representation issues um, and, and the ways in which we represent bodies. But also I really ultimately wanted the book to be an HIV AIDS 101 for um, people who I realized were alive that, that had not experienced any of this and didn't really have an understanding of what had happened in this country. And so I wanted this to in some ways be like a starting point and obviously they go elsewhere for more, but at least some introduction. And then I wanted to represent the medicine and the, and the nursing concerns, the ways in which the, the difficulty of, of care and providing care in this moment since we were in a care environment. And finally, I wanted to represent my patients. Um, and I'll talk a little more, more about this in a second, but each of the stories that I use to represent um, is, is trying to bring along an important point that I'm telling through the story. And on the bottom right there, um, I can, I can just say this now. I want to make it clear that um, I obviously have ethical uh, responsibilities and, and legal restrictions when it comes to representing my patients. So um, I struggled with that a lot because if you think about with the AIDS crisis, the names project, like keep their names alive, but it, by HIPAA I'm bound by not using their names. So the resolution I found for that is actually I combine about three to five patients in every one patient. So they're composite characters. So they're all very much represent people that I knew and loved, but um, I can, I can honor all my obligations. Um, the only person in the far right there, the last panel in this set of four, these are not sequential, these are just excerpted, um, is the only patient that I could find who could uh, approve of his own representation, and I was able to interview him. Unfortunately, he did die before the book came out, um, but he, he did consent to both his physical representation and, and any text I would use. Um, so uh, integrating all of those things became a bit of a challenge. <laughs> um, this is literally my desk, but I'm sitting down trying to do all of that. Um, initially, in the project, I was not going to be in it. I was not going to be in it. This wasn't going to be my memoir. This was the story of the unit. But then ultimately, I came around to realizing that um, when someone read my oral history and they said it was sort of like, uh, I don't know what that expression is, like drinking from a fire hose, it was all too much, that I needed to sort of serve as kind of a, a, a guide through this. Um, and, uh, and also, in some ways, it was inauthentic. Like, obviously, these are my memories and my memoir, and I have a place in this, and I want to hide, but I can't. So I decided to, uh, to put myself into the story. Um, so um, where am I going here? OK, so uh, again, don't have my presenter notes, but I think what I'm trying to point out here is that um, one of the biggest struggles of this is trying to figure out who, so if I'm going to be in this, who am I? Like, why am I there? Why am I providing care in this moment of time, in this history? How did I get? Kind of like all of the questions I'm asking of my narrators, I have to sort of establish and be able to answer for myself. And then there's this weird thing when you make a graphic memoir that um, Harvey Pekar's widow, Joyce Bradner, talked about at one of our graphic medicine conferences is that 
you have avatar you and you have real world you. And you have to kind of decide where the lines are, what does that mean, how do you make decisions about that. Um, and so I was really struggling with that, particularly when I, I had these false starts with the book and I had started making this book and I was dove right into this one spot and then I just realized like, why is this, why, what is motivating this character, me, to be this nurse? Because my own father had just died months before. Why would I go to a place where I knew all my patients were gonna die? And I realized there was a lot I needed to understand going back in terms of caregiving in my own life. So, frustrated by all this, one day I took my dog for a walk and we came upon this tree that had been cut down. And of course, what a great metaphor, right? I came to realize like, oh, 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 okay. I can create a map sort of based on this, right? And um, then sort of start to understand context. And there's a, this is a two-step process that got me to doing this. This is the first step. Is, um, and, and I'm gonna use a, a handout that I made for students, because I've actually used this as a tool in teaching memoir, um, to try to kind of like understand where the things that happen in your life fall. So basically, um, that if you make a dot in the center of a page that represents your birth, and then you make a circle around that dot representing each year of your life, right? The rings of the tree. If you're old, use big paper. If you're old, use big paper. <laughs> I've learned this. Um, uh, and, and so then you, you know, obviously you can see where this is going, right? So then you sort of fill in stuff in it. Like then you start writing like the year and you kind of write the year out and then you write your age. And then you write like things that happen. A good place to start is like what year you were in school, what your teacher's names were, just all these things that start triggering. And this obviously isn't something you sit and do um, once, you just kind of keep filling it in, right? And then you end up with this sort of like, um, you just keep filling it up, and before you know it, you have this sort of kind of record of what happened when in your life. So that was step one. Step two then was, um, Oh, this is sort of what mine ended up looking like. So this is kind of, you know, I got lazy and didn't do the full circles, but you see where we're going here. Um, but and then step two was I made a comic for every year of my life. Highly recommend this process. Um, just sort of like tracking, kind of caregiving, intersection with hospitals. Um, my mother was a nurse, so I talk a lot about that. And then kind of like the values I was taught. All of these things, and my hope was that, so this is the year before the book would start in 1993, my hope was with having gone back, and none of this will really ever see, aside from things like this, the light of day, it's just this reference point. And then um, hopefully the plan would be that when I got to 1993, I'd have a much better sense of who character me was informed by my experiences of childhood looked at kind of in sequence and in terms of consequence. So then there we are back and I'm ready to kind of start back up. Um, uh, this is from uh, Rush Medical Center near here, where I went to nursing school. They actually have two original Keith Herring murals that you can go visit. They're behind glass now, but um, plexiglass now, but they weren't at that time. Um, so the only panel that ends up appearing from my childhood in the book is this one, talking about the influence of my mother, who was a nurse, you know, making hospital corners as a child. Um, and uh, so back at it, dove back in, kept moving forward, ended up making a million pages. This was the book. Uh, I did all the inks on paper and then scanned them into the computer and did the colors digitally. These are the edits. I thought I was done, but whoa, I was not. Um, <laughs> so uh, this was the page where I was gonna talk about um, the representation of my patients, but I've done that. Um, oh, and all of a sudden my presenter notes show up. So um, <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. No, this is good because I wanted to read a quote, so this is good. So, so yeah, so in the end I had a book. Um, 
but of course, when it first came out, I was very sheepish about it because sheepish isn't the right word. Reticent about putting it out, and um, because uh, obviously I'm not reticent about putting out, I did it. I guess what I'm trying to say is I really wanted to hear back from the people whose experiences I was representing and the place I was representing that I'd done it right. Um, and also from historians <laughs> that I'd done okay in representing this moment in history in this place at this time. Um, so, uh, I am very proud of this quote, if I can get it all, is that um, uh, Mark O'Connell wrote in the Oral History Review, this first person narrative supported by oral history testimonies from patients, other nurses, volunteers, and doctors is witness to a terrible moment in American history is riveting. The work here serves as a valuable reflection on and historical portrait of the AIDS hysteria of the 80s and 90s in America. So um, I've got some sense that I did okay, but ultimately I'll just sit through one of your presentations and maybe you can tell me how I did. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's the book. Thanks. Wow, tough acts to follow. <laughs> love these presentations. So my presentation, I'll be looking at color, at the color of things. Um, what is the role of color, color names, color experiences um, in queer and trans life narratives? How is coloring used to help narrate coming of age while coming out processes? Do coloring techniques manage to queer heteronormative life narratives? Are they able to queer the coming of age while coming out trope? This paper explores the form and function of painterly color in LGBTQI, um, et cetera, graphic memoirs from a queer perspective, or that's what I'm trying. Ever since Alison Bechtel's published Fun Home in 2006, to both popular and critical acclaim, there's been a strong LGBTQI presence in graphic memoirs and novels. Color, however, has remained an under-theorized element of these novels. And I'm you know, just starting, so this is um, just a start. <laughs> My recent foray into color as a narrative and visual device in graphic storytelling builds on a long-standing research interest in the symbiotic relationship between gender and color, historically. Among other things, I have done extensive research on the gendered and sexualized use of pink hues in children's books and children's picture books since the 1990s, and also why pink doesn't figure actually in earlier um, children's books. Um, I was specifically interested in the way in which the color pink came to signify feminine boyhood in stories of overcoming and preventing bullying. So in, uh, in this presentation, I will share some preliminary thoughts on how color attaches to narratives and markers of gender and sexuality in graphic memoirs and autobiographically inspired graphic novels. From the rejection of anything pink signaling the young protagonist's disidentification with heterosexual femininity in Fun Home and Liz Prince's Tomboy, to the different blue tints, meanings, and affects in Julie um, Moreau's blue is the warmest color, the hypergendered use of color in Sabrina Symington's first year out, and um, finally the black, gray, and white uh, in Snapshots of a Girl by Belnan Sesen. I will trace the use of color as a shorthand and a label as a way for a protagonist to, dis to dis identify with gender and sexual norms and as a technique to grab the reader's attention and evoke an emotional response. 
One of my main findings is that color is readily associated with feelings and feelings with bodily sensations. Analyzing color and graphic memoirs may give us um, glimpse, a glimpse at how gender and sexual disidentifications are narrated in ways that words and more conventional narrative panels cannot. So some of the concepts that I work with are um, deeply rooted in queer of color theory. I use the term disidentification in reference to Jose Minuos's seminal book, Disidentifications, understood as neither an identification nor a counter-identification. It is a working on, with, and against a form, a form at a simultaneous moment. I'm also indebted to a brief exchange I once had with um, Jose Munoz about his project on feeling brown. In his presentation, uh, in this presentation, I would like to think of gendered color codes as effectively laden and as expressing an effective difference, by which I mean the ways in which various historically marginalized groups feel differently and navigate the world in a different emotional register. Other concepts that I draw on are rooted in queering hetero and cisnormative life narratives, while also honoring the ways in which time binds us um, in very conventional ways, to quote Elizabeth Freeman. Um, is, there, is there a queer practice of coloring that also helps queer the temporality of conventional life narratives? How may a particular coloring technique undergird queer temporalities help us emotionally connect and empathize with the queer narratives presented to us? So most of the LGBTQI graphic memoirs discussed here disidentify with the heteronormative coming of age trope. That is, they grapple with the hetero and cisnormative life narrative without being also, without being really to, able to disavow its power. By the coming of age trope, I refer to a story featuring an adolescent making the mental leap from child to adult. In real life, this happens over the course of several years in graphic memoirs. There's also space to develop that, but you know, obviously relatively, you know, little space. Um, so it's, you know, a life narrative is compressed, it's selective, obviously, it's constructed also, and um, some of the character development is accelerated. So stock themes are the idea that growing up sucks, that feelings of being misunderstood by adults in one's life, adolescent angst, gender performance of risky behavior, um, e.g. boys harm and violent behavior uh, towards others and girls self-harm and tension within peer groups and in school settings, um, the need to face and overcome bullies. Um, you're not going to be able to read this, but when it comes to LGBTQI coming-of-age stories, the standard trope is the coming-out story or the gender af affirmation or transition story. While coming out certainly happens in real life, the coming out story trope has certain standard stereotypical notes, notes that every telling of it tends to hit, no matter who the characters involved are. The main character will at one point have one person in their life wholeheartedly support them, um, while at least another will turn out to be homophobic or transphobic and will hate them. When parents are involved, um, they will either, you know, firstly, throw their own child out of the home for this revelation or reveal that they suspected all along, but were content to wait um, for their child to feel comfortable enough to admit it. 
So there's regular experiences of bullying, discomfort with gendered clothing, dress norms, um, and much more. So this is an example of actually um, Beldan Sassane, one of the authors I discuss here, and how she discusses the coming out story <clears throat> or coming out on um, really the first page of her snapshots of a girl that she published in 2015. She describes the value and necessity of coming out by writing this graphic novel, um, memoir. So coming out really is, or it's a stepping out of the unseen about a claiming space, as Sophie already mentioned, about being seen, about naming things, about knowing being visible. It's not about fixing anyone's identity and place, um, but it is about claiming a past and a present and importantly about disturbing the polite agreement of shared silence, of refusal of being silenced, and also sort of an interest also in causing discomfort. So it's, there is something political, um, you know, personal and political about, about um, memoirs, um, LGBTQI memoirs. So um, I start with, with um, color names and sort of actually in a black and white comic and the way um, because actually a lot of these um, memoirs are, are you know not using a lot of color um, but they are using color names they're you know some of them are also not using color just economic reasons it's expensive to publish <laughs> um, but this is Liz Prince's um, um, graphic memoir Tomboy from 2014 she published that in her mid-30s I find that kind of interesting or important because it also tells us about you know the color conventions because they're you know colors aren't universally um, always the same you know the codes are different depending on what historical era so it kind of depends also when the person wrote it um, the age of the person and 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 you know the age of the, the avatar or the you know the fictional the, the person in the comic so this is um, clearly um, um, Liz Prince, who you know, is boy identified um, and, and describes that struggle with her gender identity and her sexual identity. Um, her memoir is told through short related stories starting from Prince's early childhood experiences and ending when Prince is a teenager and has slowly learned to define herself as a masculine woman or butch on her own terms. Um, an important feature is gendered dress norms and here she describes her favorite outfit and that is notably a red baseball cap and a well-worn gray blazer. Um, so it's a, um, a narrative disidentification with specific color schemes and specific colors um, as a shorthand for her disidentification with gender and sexual norms. Um, here, um, it's you know pink that is being singled out as um, you know something that she was made to wear and. Um, coupled with lovely and frilly and dainty and reserved. Those are all the notions of femininity that, that to um, Liz Prince are, um, you know, actually provoke a very emotional, guttural response, black. You know, it's like sort of really something that she, you know, does not want on her body. And she also combines it with the well-known um, nursery rhyme, um, sugar spice and everything nice. So those are the connotations that, um, um, Liz Prince um, sort of draws herself with as you know in order to express her her discomfort with the gender norms sexual norms 
So similarly, Alison um, Bechdel in, in Fun Home also, you know, actually doesn't use many colors. It's this greenish tint um, or blue, blue greenish tint, but she uses um, uh, color names in a bit of a similar way that Liz Prince uses it. Um, but here, you know, as you probably all know, um, the graphic uh, memoir is also not just about um, Alison, um, but the relationship very much of her and her um, um, father. And um, color actually works as a, as a way to grapple with that relationship or also um, a way of, design of, design of dis identifying with, with her father or sort of trying to understand what's, what there is. So um, here too, the father tries to um, you know, tell her what she, what her room should look like. He was very invested in 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 in, in um, decorating and and ornamental baroque stuff. And and to to Allison or you know her, her character in, in the graphic memoir, the response is, "But I hate pink. I hate flowers." Again, this coupling of of pink and flowers that comes up later on. Here, it's more sort of a gender about gender norms about you know, her childhood room and what it's supposed to look like. Um, um, later on, it's sort of her father that she um, couples with, with also flowery um, things and then also a well-known gay trope, the, um, uh, the pansy. So, um, so Bechdel contrasts her father's preference for all things ornamental, baroque, and colorful with her own nose-nonsense, functional style, and dark blue color preference. And she states at one point, I grew to resent the way my father treated his furniture like children and his children like furniture. And another quote, my own decided preference for the unadorned and purely functional emerged early when I grew up. When I grew up, my house is going to be all metal like a submarine. <laughs> and her dislike of elaborate color schemes expresses her desire to be free from the way her father's sense of style overpowers everyone in the family. Here symbolized um, by the yellow turtleneck that he makes her put on. And, um, and she really couldn't care less what she wore. And he would you know, always be like, oh, that doesn't match. That's not, you know, that doesn't work. And um, here, another way that he would sort of butt in and, and, and overshadow her, her ways of, of, or her space actually as, as, as a child, as, as a child sort of developing, um, is when she is, she's actually coloring a story um, and using her, her favorite color, dark blue, which is not so unsurprising that she actually prefers dark blue and not pink. Um, uh, which you know is obviously about gender um, as well, but then um, the father um, comes in and says he quickly butts in and takes over. Your blue side will be in shadow, while his becomes a crayonic tour de force. So this is um, actually the panel where he, you know, takes over, and then um, okay. So um, these are the. Um, ways that color names are being used, but um, what um, really fascinated me most is this um, graphic memoir, Blue is the Warmest Color by Julie Moreau, is a French 
um, uh, graphic memoir that ended up being a film and that you know um, became quite well known. She also uses color names and quite elaborate and and um, but here it's the color blue and it's also deeply gendered and sexualized. Um, it comes to stand for you know sexual desire, um, lesbian desire really, and um, also a sort of uh, awakening. And um, so when Emma, which is the main character, talks in this, um, actually reads the letter by her girlfriend, Clementine, who has just um, passed away recently, um, untimely death, um, and she reads in the letter, blue has become the warmest color, it, it suggests that you know, this, this desire for blue, for the lesbian love, um, is actually you know, queered in the sense that blue is not cool like in conventional understandings, but it's actually the warmest color, it's hot. Um, so um, Moreau really works with um, different ways, um, works color in different ways, and um, to, to queer it, in my understanding, and also to queer temporalities. She, um, she uses for the past, and those are diary entries of Clementine, she uses um, black and white or gray shades with splashes of blue, and um, namely it's, it's always the hair of, of Emma, and Emma is readily read by also the classmates of, of um, Clementine as a lesbian, as, as gay. And sort of this blue, blue hair becomes code for you know, lesbian desire um, throughout, but also sort of the past in this black and white, and then blue shades, yellowish blue shades, greenish shades for the present. So here we have the past and uh, you know, splash of the blue um, hair. Here you have the diary. So, so blue is not just um, lesbian desire, but it's also sort of truth, the truth that Clementine has learned to live. She ends up writing a diary, and the diary is what's left in the end, and Emma gets to read the diary um, um, once after um, Clementine has already um, passed away. So, um, Another way where that blue signifies sort of the authentic self of Clementine and also sort of an awakening is she has a dream and um, before she actually really realizes um, you know, that she might be a lesbian or ha have same-sex desires and um, has this dream and then wakes up from this dream and this is sort of described in the diary. So this is sort of when the past merges with the, with the here and now. And I find that interesting, sort of how this switch or, you know, sort of when um, this is the diary by being read by Emma in, in actually Clementine's former um, bedroom in her parental home. So it's this fuzzy, blurry panels that I find quite interesting. And I always, you know, find it as, um, could be read as, as some kind of queering of temporality and this overlapping of different temporalities. Another way that temporality is being used here in a different comic um, um, on, on um, transitioning by Sabrina Simington um, is First Year Out. And here too is just, a, a, you know, how are specific, very seminal moments um, expressed? Um, and here you have the, you know, sort of very hyper-gendered way of, of 
the moment when she gets the letter that she can get gender um, affirming surgery. And here, flashback when she longs for the pink dress. Um, and um, is sort of basically, though, um, asked by her dad to, to, um, to choose a suit, a dark color suit. Um, I guess <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. I would um, have much more to say, maybe in the Q&A. But thank you very much. And later. There's lots of overlapping themes, yes. I think. We'll see. Um, great. Yeah. So again, memoirs of growing up offer perspectives on childhood from a, a wide range of, of times, places, and situations. What I'm going to emphasize here, and I think we are hearing a theme, graphic memoirs in particular add a really rich visual dimension that accounts uh, to account for past childhood beyond those you can't convey with words. And I think we're hearing all different takes on this, and I'll, this is going to be another one. Um, like Sophie, I'm going to be emphasizing a look at spaces of childhood and thinking about um, how the perspective, literally, of, of the child is or isn't represented in very specific kinds of spaces and um, how we're thinking um, both not just metaphorically but literally in a way about point of view and those are the kinds of questions I want to explore when um, thinking about child childhoods in particular as they're represented in, in visual graphic memoirs. How do they see their childhood? How do they remember seeing their childhood and how do they get us to see it? Right, That's the question here. I'm going to uh, look at several kinds of uh, uh, dimensions here, how the child's positionality is, is placed in the memoir, how uh, choices about visual representation contribute to the memoir's plot itself and uh, its impact on the reader, and how, uh, and this again relates to a couple of points that have been already made, how, how, how graphic memoir authors literally use the images to document as forms of documentation. I think that was a big theme in Sophie's paper too, reprodu reproducing the documents in a different form. I also wanted to raise the question particularly of perspective in the sort of way we usually think about it, not uh, visually, first person versus third person. Again, I started coming from writing, reading text memoirs that written in the first person. But here we see that, that author, uh, artists also choose to depict themselves in either the third person as in the top view or the first person. So either seeing themselves in the picture to be part of the action or seeing the world as it looked from their eyes. And so I think, I see, I think we see people playing with those questions of perspective and spaces as well. I'm going to be focusing on six uh, different memoirs. Um, I'm going to be looking at the spatial environments of childhood as represented in a set of graphic memoirs by six authors, all of whom eventually became professional artists and all were born in the mid-20th century. So that's what contains them in some ways as a group. Um, it's, um, graphic memoir has rapidly become a global phenomenon, and so I was interested in, I started with some of the stories we've already been hearing about, some of the classic American stories, but then I wanted to look around the world at people who had grown up at around the same time but in really different settings. So my first example was mentioned quickly in one of the presentations is Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Oh, that's not this, by the way. I'll go back here now to my actual first one. Uh, a work that played a hugely significant role in the genre of, the, of graphic memoir. Uh, it's simultaneously a memoir and a life story because it's the story of Art getting his, collecting his father's story. So it's a second generation Holocaust story. It's not just a memoir, then it's also Holocaust history, and because of that, Spiegelman was obsessed with documentation. 
Uh, according to Ruth Franklin, Spiegelman was obsessively focused on getting the visual details right, consulting drawings by survivors, photographs, and maps to ensure that nothing was misrepresented. Franklin points out the seeming paradox here. There's something mildly lunatic about insisting on this sort of verisimilitude in a story in which all the people appear as, as animals. Or, or is there? Franklin reminds us of the genre debate raised by the publication of Mouse 2 in, in, in 1991. The New York Times uh, book review bestseller list placed it in the fiction category. And Spiegelman uh, very quickly objected. I shudder to think how Holocaust denier David Duke would respond to seeing a carefully researched work based closely on my father's memories of life in Hitler's Europe and the death camps classified as fiction. And here I always draw the distinction between graphic memoir claims and graphic novel claims, and don't, you know, I like to keep those apart. Uh, the concern with visual is apparent in the images of the settings of the life story told by art, uh, to art by his father, such as the iconic gates of Auschwitz, but also in the depictions of the family's home in Regal Park, uh, New York, where the life story actually was lived and told. In terms of visual perspective, Spiegelman mostly deploys third person, uh, images in, include uh, the prefits here where we're seeing um, where he, that launches the story. His father begins his act of memory in the, in, the, in the driveway of their house in Rigo Park. Art was about 10 years old. Um, he'd been on the sidewalk skating with friends when his father like starts the story um, in a very dramatic way. And we see that again, that representation of this very particular, very modest milieu is important um, to Spiegelman. But we also see another depiction of an important scene from Art's youth, uh, and that is the scene of his mother's suicide when he was 20. In representing himself going through this trauma, Art uh, depicts himself as a prisoner in uniform. He had recently been released from an, an asylum, and the image slips between sort of the guilty memories of his last encounter with his mother in the family home before he was institutionalized and the prison of the asylum here, I think, reflecting on his own guilt of having contributed to his mother's suicide. So he's di directly connecting then his perspectivity here um, with his developing subject and I think self-identity um, through these various visual techniques and uh, representing memory. A second example makes the connection between depiction of subjectivity even more explicit. The 2009 graphic memoir, Stitches, um, by David Small, highlights, highlights uh, visualization and alternating perspectives I've already mentioned. Stitches tells the story of Small's growing up in an emotionally cold atmosphere, his bout with thyroid cancer, that left him literally voiceless. Perspectivity figures literally and metaphorically. Um, he begins by drawing a bird's eye view of the city of Detroit where he grew up, then moves into a more typically third person perspective as he goes into the home, we see that. And he then moves from this third person to the first person going back and forth. And I think we can see a direct connection between um, this perspectivity and the emotional state, especially the coldness and distance he associates with his family life. He's recalling himself as a seeing subject, but one without a lot of agency beyond escaping his own, into his own imagination by drawing. And that's there very early on in the picture. We see the reproduction of the child's eye view, but what we're seeing is a small person looking up at looming and frightening adults, relaying uh, subjective feelings of vulnerability rather than agency. Agency would only come later when he literally escapes. So in Stitches, Small's memoirs are represented almost exclusively through images, almost wordlessly, very little text. Um, and, his, and that plots the story because, again, we find out that later um, his father 
uh, was a radiologist who had used, practiced radiology on his son in order to cure mild childhood diseases, ended up giving him thyroid cancer, which left him literally voiceless. So it's a very complicated story, but one which he uses the playoff of silence and imagery and drawing. And uh, we finally see him becoming a graphic artist, a cartoonist, leaving home at age 16 to escape this site of the home um, as his site of trauma. Finally, the other example, which I probably won't have to talk a lot about because several people already have done so, um, Bechdel. Uh, again, I'm using these very well-known kind of iconic examples because I see these uh, uses of space as being interesting and similar in some ways. Obviously, Bechdel is known for her precise visual detail. Again, she was born in 1960, so just a decade after the previous two um, I was talking about. So graphic memoirs were already a thing by the time, uh, you know, in some ways she was beginning to think about uh, drawing. But uh, she uses, I think, the, the, the genre in a very specific way. And I want to just show a couple of examples. We've seen some already, but here I want to emphasize the spatial dimensions again, and particularly the home, right? The fun home, which is, is, the, is the place of her childhood. Here she's showing her father in a moment of anger of his, his house, you know, as, as we've already heard, meticulous attention, but then he gets angry. He throws, uh, he, he throws something on the floor and leaves what she calls a permanent linoleum scar. That permanent scar, no doubt, uh, reinforced her memory of this incident of violence, but also uh, it left an imprint on the house itself, a trace, right? So a trace in her memory, but also a trace in the house. Uh, the memoir dwells on her father's death when Allison was 20, a death she deemed to be a suicide, but it, that death affected her coming of age much in the same way that Art Spiegelman's mother's suicide affected his and it plots her retrospective account. That is the plot, right, to figure out the mystery. Documents play a, a big role in puzzling out the story. These include, for example, drawings of newspapers, headlines, family photos, and especially diary entries. So we see uh, her own self-authored documents being redrawn, right, from her own childhood diaries that document her obsessive compulsive disorder and her efforts to grapple with it. So as Bechdel leads us through the various memories and documents, we learn of her father's struggle as a closeted gay man in a small town in Pennsylvania in the 1960s and 70s. We simultaneously watch Bechdel's own emerging subjectivity, changing perspective, and developing agency. Um, despite the strict regimentation her father attempted to impose on the family. The family fun home is the site of all of Bechdel's important moments of growing up. And as in the two previous examples, it's also a place from which she has to escape. So again, these, and I, I'm not gonna make the claim here that these are classic American stories, right? These are exceptional American stories of childhood. But it's telling that these are in some ways the most influential launching of the genre kind of um, narratives and ones that have resonated with huge audiences, not just in the US, but elsewhere, and have been powerfully influential in shaping the genre of graphic memoir. And I, in, in all of them, they represent the home as both a predominant space of childhood and the site of personal trauma or psychic damage from which escape had to happen. And then, so that's where I want to turn with these, uh, these visualizations with several examples by prominent artists from other parts of the globe who are growing up at the same time, but in very different political geographic spaces. And, I, um, and that, I think, highlights the cultural particularity of the American stories. So I'll, the three I'm going to talk about are very quick, quickly. Lot, who, who was born in Malaysia in 1951. Lee Kun Wu, who was born in China in 1955. And Mogorosi Mochumi, who was born in South Africa in 19, also in 1955. So Lat began uh, drawing when he was very young. 
uh, not this young. He had his first cartoon published when he was just 13, and he was earning a regular income as a cartoonist by the time he was 17. This is from Kampung Boy. His, his memoir was published in 1979 when he was just 28. And it's a strong narrative line evincing nostalgia for the village, the Kampung in which he grew up and spent his first 11 years. The memories are mostly comic and sweet, although young Lat does get into trouble with his mother when he runs off from chores, such as this one taking care of his younger siblings, or when he runs off with friends to have fun and his parents don't really approve of his friends or his fun. Still, by and large, the, the images and the perspectives, um, they re re reconstruct our very, I say, loving, nostalgic, um, and mostly out of doors uh, in a benign environment. There are adults around somewhere, but they're very rarely depicted. Moreover, in contrast with the constrained and troubled domestic spaces we saw in the American graphic memoirs, uh, Lat's family home, when you see it, is quite permeable. Literally, the walls are open. It's, you know, people walking in and out. And it's just one of many spaces in which the childhood is lived. I think the appeal to Malaysian readers and the story Lat wanted to tell through his childhood memories uh, hinged on the portrayal of culturally specific Malay spaces, the Malay villages of the past that were disappearing. Um, the idea that these these kampung could be a source of national pride and identity, even as globalization and urbanization threatened to destroy these old forms of life. Uh, politics, whether national or local or global, are peripheralized, they're not in there, um, in the name of constructing an, a shared nostalgic uh, space of traditional pre-urban childhood. Here, the home is not a place to escape, but rather a space to which to return. And in fact, Lot did move back as a successful adult cartoonist to his kampung. Now, that, that's one story, is, but I think the Chinese one is maybe even a bit more surprising in that um, this is uh, Gen Li Kung Wu's Chinese Life, also a memoir of growing up, this time during the most contentious and violent episodes of modern Chinese history, but it also evokes nostalgia for that past in a, in a surprising kind of way. The present um, from which Li writes is that of the early 21st century, by which time the Chinese regime had departed from most of its originary revolutionary program. But there are still continuities in political style, and Li himself actually has worked for the Chinese state as an official illustrator his whole, his whole adult life. And so, um, you know, he has, to, he has to navigate a very tricky, already? Oh my god, okay, a tricky. Uh, he has to navigate a tricky political terrain. Um, you know, you don't hear about Tibet, you don't hear about Tiananmen Square. His, his choice was to draw things he knew, saw, experienced. So you see in his, his drawings, you know, this home, this home life a little bit. It's again, uh, small, crowded, but they're looking out. But a lot of it, again, takes place in the streets. Um, and these are places where, um, you know, he's going out to, to, as part of the, the rat killing campaign, part of a government crusade. So again, uh, he manages to turn a childhood memories of nostalgia for a time that was better, in which he was doing interesting and important things with his family, in which the regime still stood for something, even though, of course, in the background, you're not seeing all the horrific sides of it. I'll take really quickly one last example, which I think is important to put in the picture, too, and that is, um, is Mochumi's uh, The Initiation. And here we have the example. He's the very first black South African illustrator to write in this genre, the first memoir of this sort. And um, it's, it's completely political. I guess that's the message. It's all politicized. There's no escaping politics. He, he later on would write explicitly about his own involvement in anti-apartheid dissent. But the political frame is never absent, even from the earliest moments. Here we see 
Um, the first, the very first opening scene where the police are coming to his home, where he's living in a black homeland with his grandmother, because his parents are like most people at this, black people at this time living in the city. And they're coming to arrest him and his grandmother and his neighbor because they're behind in the rent payment. And he's worried about being late for school and getting thrashed at school because he's not going to be there on time. So that's very political from the beginning. And we see also a lot of street scenes. Um, and the streets are, again, both appealing and dangerous. They're the sites of drugs. They're the sites of uh, politics. They're the sites of bullying. And, um, and they're also the sites of, of his politicization. So I guess the big point here is, Again, like the other two I've showed from the Global South, the home isn't such a big deal, but when it is, in this case, specifically, there's no nostalgia about it. It's already a site of oppression, as it had to have been uh, in, in the case of, of the apartheid regime. And, um, and there's no, de there no possibility of escaping the politics. He's growing up, whatever space he's growing up is in political. Now, I would say, obviously, that's true generally, but this is very explicit, and it's also a space that he needs to escape from, but not alone. It's not about personal trauma. It's about a community that has to work together to escape this system of apartheid. So again, I think I better stop there, but I think you can see the themes coming out, the interior and exterior spaces, their connections and the borders, and the politicization that is part of the frame of all the adult storytellers and the placing themselves in spaces as part of the story they need to tell. Thank you. Uh, was this book published in other countries? 
and what you call dark room at Wilhelm's Roman or just a, a coming of age story. Um, MK, first of all, it's an honor to have you here because you're not a typical scholar, you're one of the authors. Uh, so, so we're very happy to have you here. Uh, so you, you can probably tell us more about the, the process of, of writing graphic novels. And I think that what you're doing is extremely important. And so how, was, how important was the therapeutic part of the writing process for you as an author? And have you thought about translating your memoir into other languages? Because I think that it definitely should be translated into other languages and then published in other countries, uh, um, in European countries, African countries, struggling with the HIV-AIDS um, crisis now, you know, in the 21st century. Uh, Dominique, once again, I'm looking forward to reading your book and think. And I think, I really think that the next one should be of a different color, and um, I think it's, it's gonna be blue. Um, and I would love it. And when it comes to blue, I'm not sure if you know that in, in Russian, uh, in the Russian language, when you say that a boy is blue, gold boy, it means that he's gay. Yeah, so the, the significance of the color blue is uh, differs from country to country, and if you're talking about blue as the color of uh, representing lesbian love and so on, so this may be an interesting trope for you um, in your new uh, research on blue. Yeah. So, does the usage of blue as the masculine color reaffirm gender stereotypes in the graphic no uh, graphic memoirs that you discuss, um, or maybe uh, maybe not? MJ. You compared three well-known memoirs classics with some that I was not familiar with, and um, that was a great thing to do, I think. Can you tell us how the relationship between adults and children is depicted in the non-American memoirs? Uh, also, are they as intertextual and mature as, uh, for example, Funhouse and uh, uh, Fun Home, sorry, and, and Mouse uh, are? So these are my quick, basic questions, and I have a lot of different questions and suggestions, but I'll let it open um, for discussion, so we can start with Esri, maybe, my comments and questions. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Um, so you asked about the response to the book? Yeah, the response. Um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like very well received and reviewed, and it was translated into Spanish, for sure. I think also one or two other languages, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think you also asked what it, what, who it was directed towards, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's written from like a, the child pers child's perspective. Yeah. I think it's also um, taught in schools. Yeah. So, yeah, it's used for that as well. Um, okay, so I can go next. So um, I, I talked a little bit about the sense of who is the reader. Um, for my book, uh, obviously I'm speaking from the intentionality of the creator. Um, uh, so it's published by an academic press, which is really unusual. So obviously there was an intention all along for it to be used as in, in that context. Um, but, but when I was making it, I was really thinking about, as I mentioned, um, the people who were there and the people who weren't there. And that there was very two different things, but hopefully it all happened and, and works there. Um, uh, you talked about, or you asked about um, the therapeutic process in making it. Um, th thinking not just beyond myself, but the larger idea of making comics about experiences that were traumatic. Um, it, it's interesting, because in, in, I, I work in the intersection of comics and health, 
and that's one of the areas where we see a lot of work happening. Um, cartoonists working with, or people working with art therapists around trauma, uh, either sexual trauma or war and, and violence. Um, and I'm really fascinated by some of the theory around that, like the idea that uh, when you make a comic, you actually have, um, you know, you're in charge of all the choices. Like the, the person who's empowered to be in charge, of, in charge of all the choices, like the color of the space, what's shown, what's not space, what's in the frames, what's out, how time progresses, all of that. So, so you suddenly, or, or through this process, can have agency over something over which you had no agency, right? The trauma itself. Um, so in a way, that's really helpful. Um, and also, and this speaks to my own experience of it as well, the things I hear are that it's something that, it, that you are also in the act of doing uh, a comic about trauma, you are externalizing it. And for me, that was very much the case. These were all things, these memories that sort of were very much present with me. And in the act of externalizing them, I now have this object in the world that I can engage with, but they don't take, these memories don't have as much power over me in, in a negative way um, because I've gone through this process and made them external. So. Yeah, I think that the way MK described it for her process, it sounds like a lot of the, you know, when I read interviews by some of the authors that, um, of the books that I portrayed, um, they have very similar stories of that's what's, you know, that's the work that actually producing this graphic memoir did is working through. And I think that's where um, also my que your question to me is, is, you know, is it reaffirming gender norms? Yes and no. It's a working through gender norms. I mean, you, you know, they're, they're born in this world where there are um, gender norms and they're oppressive and they've, you know, they yeah, um, suffer. Um, so it's a, it's, it is a way of, of, you know, working with what's there. So yes, some of it is affirming also notions of authenticity of, you know, that's real, my real self, and this is, you know, how I had to be, and all these things that um, we might look at critically, but this is how they experienced it. And I do think there is, in, in this Julie Malmo's, um, Blue is the warmest color, there is potential of queering also. I do think there is, you know, a lot of blurring. It's, it's yeah, it's, um, in, in the way also color is being you know, used and then resignified as hot and not cool. And, and of course color is, is you know, historically very specific. Um, I would never you know, make uh, yeah, universal claims about um, color at all. Um, and I do think it's interesting how, how these novels travel, I mean, or yeah. these memoirs, and it's, so many of them have been translated in different languages. I mean, so has Julie Melo's. And, and yeah, and how then Actually, the Chinese received. one was originally published in French, not oh. in Chinese. Yeah. I don't exactly. think it's been published in Chinese yet. That's another way to avoid the politics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the Belan Ceses is a German um, yeah. Turkish woman, and she has it published in Italy, but it's in English. Wow. <laughs> so wow. it's like this, yeah, it's, yeah. Welcome to the 21st century. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And those are also really good questions, thanks. Um, I guess just, and I'll try to be really quick, um, adults and children, yes, very different. I mean, again, it's almost, I hadn't thought of it in these terms, but the three that I picked, the American ones, they're all these nuclear families with intergenerational troubles. I mean, the parents are troubled and the children are troubled to one extent or another and their relationships are troubled. In the other ones, um, there isn't that uh, edge. In fact, the, the, the relationships in all the cases um, are, I would say, well, certainly in the cases of Locke and, um, and Lee, the parent-child relations are, 
are fine, but they're also diffused because it's not just the parents. It's not a story about the home and the parents. It's like there are many other kinds of adults in their lives. Uh, school teachers are important. Uh, public officials are important to organize the marches and whatnot. Except, again, in Lyme, it's funny. It's not. There's no officials, um, you know, but it's a lot of other kinds of adults. Um, so it's a very different kind of relationship, more diffuse and less um, pathological. <laughs> and, um, and then in terms of the second question about the, again, that was really interesting, the intertextuality. It, uh, I would say it's not there so much in Lot because um, it's, again, these very simple drawings. They're just meant to evoke this calm, this again, pre-literate almost, right? I think it's about pre-literacy, about, about simple visual memories. Um, but with the other two, I think documentation is important. Well, it should be certainly, because he really is documenting the injustice of apartheid. And so there's a lot, as I said, he even goes in, well, I guess I didn't say that, I have to go past too quickly. He even steps in and comments and provides documentation sometimes um, as a figure in his own his own childhood story. And um, for, I think for Lee Kung Wu, it's important too, but he's, he restricts himself to what he saw, but he wants to document what he saw as being authentic. So he shows posters that they carried during the rat campaign. So there, yeah. I just it just really follow up quickly to MJ to what you're saying. I was really struck by the the, the non-American memoirs. They are they were often people that written in the fifties. They were born they're all the same age. All of the yeah. six authors exactly. are all roughly. I mean, not okay. the same, but within a decade. With, so okay. between 1945 and 1960, they're all born and they all grew up in the same in the same time, but different places. Yeah. I'm just wondering if younger generations, especially from the non-American context, if they would write different stories because um, these, you know, Malaysia and China and South Africa has changed so much in their lifetime, would it be less nostalgic? Or have you looked at memoirs this from is, a younger generation? Yeah, I was going to say, I think sense? that's the obvious one, an obvious kind of follow-up question. This mm -hmm. is just the beginning of this project. I started with the classics and I started to branch out. Of course, the answer is yes. I know it without even reading any of them. But, the different. So but I think it's not just, so it's an introduction of the framework from which they're writing as adults and the framework they grew up in. Those are always intersected. And I would say it's true also of American stories that, I mean, these are stories, think about it, when these are growing up in the, you know, the, they're growing up in the 50s and the 60s when this is classic idealist thing. So yeah, that's a good point, And I think it would be a great one that I will be following up on. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm Ellen Bruce, University of Minnesota Morris, and I just thought each of these presentations was superb. Thank you so much, it was terrific. Um, my question's a little lateral. I was already thinking of it before MK showed us the tree ring idea, oh, which is yeah. awesome. Okay. But um, I just wondered, um, I know a couple of you, at least MJ and MK, are teaching with graphics, with comics, teaching graphic memoirs, some teaching with drawing. And I don't know about you, Dominique and Sophie, whether you taught these texts, but any reflections on what happens in the classroom when you use graphic memoirs? Are students reflecting on their own childhoods? Um, what you know? What kinds of classes have you used them in? Where do you see them helping students see history in a different way than maybe conventional text-only readings that we give to students? So I actually know what MJ does with them, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I teach in, the, in a couple of different contexts, um, usually around health and thinking about health and experiences within the, the structures of uh, medicine, I guess. Um, 
And so I teach at Northwestern in the med school, and one of the things I do, so both with drawing, so my students will draw about their experiences of becoming doctors and their interaction with the system, both as doctors-to-be and as providers and family members. Um, and then uh, they also read graphic memoir about living with illness and caregiving. So like we'll read uh, um, My Degeneration about being diagnosed with and living with uh, Parkinson's. Um, and the goal, so the goals are different. The goal with reading the text is to have a different window in through the panels of the comics, the experience of living with illness that they're not going to get in a clinic visit, right, because they're seeing them in a clinical environment. That these books give us a chance to see um, someone at home and their family members in the context in which they live. And the thing I always say about that teaching is my hope is that, um, not that they can universalize that experience so that, you know, when they meet someone newly diagnosed with cancer or Parkinson's or whatever the book covered, I don't think that now they, they know what that's like, uh -huh. but they can maybe ask more informed questions yeah. is my goal with my students in that. And then for the drawing part, what I'm really getting them to look at is, um, is, is, is using shifting positionality of who they draw themselves and the context in which they draw themselves and the movement of time. So, so for example, I have a thing, draw a clinical encounter, and they, I, I you know, let them stare at me for a minute before they figure out what they're gonna draw because I don't give them any more information. So they can choose their positionality in it. Are you the patient? Are you the family? Are you the new doctor? And I want them to go to wherever they want. And then I have them draw what came before and what came after that middle drawing. So they can start doing these moves of empathy. Um, a lot of times they draw themselves as this, this medical student who has no idea what's going on, but they have to pretend they do. <laughs> and then in drawing them before, they often shift to the perspective of the patient, and they'll draw the room why the patient was so cranky, because they realize they've been waiting for so long, and then going, so, so I try to do all kinds of things. I don't know if that answers your question. That's so great. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I use children's books, and I haven't used graphic memoirs, except maybe one like little vignette. I have them usually start, I mean, if it's a children, history of children, childhood course, I have them start with a collage, so I've had them, you know, sort of make collages of their own childhood from like different magazines or different material that I've read. And that's really, really fun and generative also to have them reflect on their own child and how that informs their, you know, sort of looking at Childhood historically, and that actually be really, really works. Yeah. yeah. So last year I've taught a course about like methods, how to analyze comics with a gendered perspective. And for most of my students, they had never read graphic memoirs before, so it was really this new experience. And uh, but they really liked it. <laughs> yeah. So it, for them it was really interesting to work with the visual aspects as well, and that was very new to them. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Unfortunately, we do not have more time for questions, but let's give them a big round of applause. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.